AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 26, 2016. That's very difficult for me to say. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Thanks. <laughs> and we have Matt Kaiser here in this in our studio or work area. How's it Welcome, going? Matt. And John Hogeboom. Welcome, John. Good I'm, to be here. <laughs> I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, John, let's go right over to you here. And uh, you know, I guess you're gonna have to explain this to me. <laughs> yeah, it's actually not. Um, it's not really complicated. Yeah. Um, but if you're familiar with a lot of the like Intel motherboards and whatnot, a lot of times yeah. they ship with these utilities to upgrade, update the drivers for various mm -hmm. components. Um, uh, for various system components on that motherboard, or as well as other things that might be attached and to it. And generally, that process has been improving, improving significantly. I think, you know, looking back, it used to be hard-coded, and then they started doing, you know, you actually had to replace the chip, which was almost impossible to get yeah, a new I mean, one. And then you're really you dating yourself at this point. Yeah, go back it's to pretty those pathetic, days, isn't it? But it, it got to the point where there weren't really any controls around the updating. We started having, you know, basically BIOS exploits. And right. so, roll forward. Right. Well, it's not it's not really a BIOS up, uh, exploit per se, but they have an Intel driver update utility that runs when your machine boots, and it goes up to the internet and tries to find out are there new uh, drivers for various components that need to be updated. The issue here, and actually this was identified by Core Security, um, they put a um, kind of little research paper out on this. Um, there is a CVE associated with this exploit. But in any event, basically what happens is when that utility runs, it goes and it makes a connection up to central command, I guess, I don't, I don't remember exact URL there, asking, you know, is there a driver update for this particular um, piece of hardware? And it'll come back with an XML document. Now when it makes that request, it's in HTTP format. So that's really the problem is that it's really prone to interception or man in the middle attack. So if you took your laptop that maybe has this running and you boot it up and you're in a Wi-Fi hotspot, somebody could potentially intercept um, or even, you know, there's all kinds of ways that I could trick your machine into proxy your activity through mm -hmm. my machine if we're both at the same Starbucks cafe. Mm -hmm. So you could do a man in the middle attack there, come back with a different answer of what really you want them to update and install. And it basically just lists in the XML, here's the zip file, go download this, install it and execute it. Um, so you could provide your own pretty quickly. It doesn't really do any kind of uh, authentication to make sure that that's a digitally signed piece of software that it's gonna run. It's doing a really basic kind of domain level check to make sure that that domain name is right, where it got it from, but um, that's not any measure of real security there. So they have a fix? They do have a fix. So uh, they have an update for it. So um, I guess the reason I really brought this up is because this is pretty a common type of update utility that a lot of people might have, especially in large businesses and enterprises. Mm -hmm. You might have a large deployment of laptops or other hardware that has this, so you might want to know about it to make sure that you go update, uh, get an update for this and apply it. Now, just out of curiosity, is this something that would take place in the background? Is, is the system is kind of polling to see if there are updates, or is this something that you know somebody would know that they're doing the update check? Well, it, you, you will know, because it actually will run 
um, and it'll kind of give you one of those dialog boxes that says, we have updates for this, 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 you want to apply that kind of thing, but it will run at that elevated privilege when it, when it goes to, you know, install itself. Right. Um, so, th th so, so it's this not is completely a... transparent to the user yeah. from, at least from what I was able to discern. I haven't tried it myself to make sure, but. Right, but the, the fact that that took place sort of in the background, the possibility of a man in the middle of the attack taking place is probably greater than as if it was something you were initiating yourself and say, you know, I'm going to do updates, you know, being a, having a little better framing around the security. That's what that was kind of the context I was trying to gather here. I guess if you were cognizant enough to be doing it at home where you believe your network's not being tampered with, I suppose that, that's, that would be a good point. I, I personally think this is sort of like, a real shame that it still sort of exists. I know these kinds of attacks have been going on for yeah. years. In fact, there's a tool called Evil Grade that was built mm -hmm. sort of much, sort of like the metasploit of this kind of attack where they just drop in modules and it says, oh, hey, someone made a request for this particular file that I'm aware of. I'm just going to man in the middle of that for you. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. This is a case where, I mean, any solution like this, particularly doing system updates, should be protected against a man-in-the-middle type attack. And so, you know, you should be able to know who, its system should know who it's talking to particularly. That, that was sort of my point here, is that if a person is actually doing this, they at least have the opportunity to scrutinize what is going, what is taking place. This is a case where if the system is doing it on your behalf, it has to have all the smarts to know whether it's talking to the right but I, organization I would or say, does the, is a human being in a position to actually make that decision? Or do they have to make a decision between, yes, I want to upgrade, and no, I don't? Depends it's not as your, if the update is going to say, being. here are your <laughs> URLs to validate human being. Yeah. Please tell me if these are what you're looking for. Or it might just say, click the big green button and make things better. Mm -hmm. I think code signing would be a really helpful benefit here. Um, I think there's a lot of things that could be accomplished security-wise by having signed code from a trusted vendor, same way you have kind of mm -hmm. SSL certificates for websites. I'm not going to install software unless it's signed and that certificate that it's signed with is from a trusted authority mm -hmm. uh, somewhere. I think that would help weed out. Unless you're a user who just is going to get that message and say, ah, oh, I don't care, boom, and install it anyway. And that mm -hmm. could still happen. But um, I think that would, that would help here. Um, I'm not quite sure what their fix does to address this, but um, uh, that, in my opinion, I'm a big kind of fan of code signing. So, yeah, I agree with you. All right, good point. So, uh, Jim, let's go. And you know, we talk a lot about uh, you know crazy dumb passwords, and I think uh, perhaps very helpful will be to uh, talk through a little bit about what kinds of crazy passwords the attackers are trying to use. And uh, so, take it away. Before we talk about the ones that the, the attackers are going to use, though, I did want to point out Splash Data came out with their list of the top 25 passwords that they saw people using this year. This comes from about 2 million passwords that were leaked in various forums on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And they analyzed those. And basically, this list is what not to use for a password. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, their, their top 25, and I talked about this a little last year, too, when the, the report for 2014 came out. But the, their top two passwords were the same this year as they were last year. Number one was 123456, and number two was password. Mm -hmm. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would ever use those passwords anymore. But those were the top two passwords that they found among these two million leaked passwords that they saw this year. And 
most of the passwords on the list are the same bad passwords that people have been using all along. Mm -hmm. The highest debuting new one this year came in at number 11, and it was welcome. Well, okay, that's not a real hard password to guess either. Well, it's actually a little contrary to what you would expect a password to be doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, there there were a couple new ones on the list this year that were 10 characters. Okay, good for, good for you for making it a little longer, but it was 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 0. And Q-W-E-R-T-Y... U-I-O-P. Just going right across the top line of the QWERTY keyboard. Right. So those are not particularly helpful. There were a couple that returned to the list after being off last year. Uh, those were Princess and Password with a zero for the O. The uh, guys who did the report wanted to make a big deal out of the new ones at number 23 and 25, Solo and Star Wars. You know, the new Star Wars movie just came out in December. There's was a lot of hype about it last year, so there's talk maybe that's why it was. Princess returned to the list after a year off. Mm -hmm. But come on, people. <laughs> you know, pick better passwords. Seriously. Yeah, you know, I, I happen to personally reflect on Let Me In because I remember using that about 20 years ago once. And, um, well, it didn't look exactly like that, but it was kind of close. And, uh, but now I use things like get the hell out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay, Jim, I didn't mean to detract uh, from your discussion. <laughs> None of these are hard to guess. I, they're, they're all relatively simple. You know, we can do better than that. Uh, but that did get me thinking, it's been a while since I looked at what passwords the bad guys were guessing in our honeypots, mm -hmm. so I decided it was time to go take a look at that again. So I looked at all of 2015, what, what did we see hitting our Kippo honeypot in 2015? Yeah, and again, I mentioned we've had the Kippo has been running since 2011, and we've actually been capturing POP3 passwords since 2009. But in 2015, we saw 2.8 million password guesses against our honeypot. That's up from 2.4 million in 2014. And to get a little sense of perspective, in the first two years that we had the honeypot running, we only had 300,000. Mm -hmm. Now, I think one of the one of the things, Jim, I wanted to point out here is that we've quickly shifted from the passwords that have been found that people are actually using. Now we're going to be talking about passwords that attackers are attempting to use against users' accounts, right? Right, right. And that, yeah. that's a good point. The, the splash data report was all what they found in leaked password lists. And what we're seeing here is what the bad guys are actually guessing um, when they're trying to, to brute force. There is some overlap, but they are two distinct sets, and they, they do actually exhibit some, some different characteristics. But looking at what we saw, just to, for some perspective, I threw up this graph of the probes per day, and we saw an increase in probing late in the year in 2014, 
and that continued over into uh, the beginning of 2015. And we saw a lot of activity in the first few months of the year. There were actually a couple of specific botnets that were doing a lot of SSH password guessing. But that all seemed to drop off around the beginning of May. There was one little spike in June, but it dropped off to levels that were the same or a little below where we had been early in 2014 before before the tick up at the end of the year. So there was some drop off in that activity, but they don't know exactly why, except that those those botnets appeared to have calmed down. And one of the big contributors early in the year was the um, the Linux XOR DDoS botnet that was scanning a lot of scanning for Linux boxes, exploiting them, turning them into scanners, and we you know we saw a lot of that activity early in the year. That pretty much dropped off the face of the map. Uh, later in the year. Hey Jim, does this include uh, Telnet password guessing as well as SSH? No, this is only SSH. Uh, okay. I don't have I, I don't have a, a good Telnet um, honeypot to feed into the same database. That's something actually I've been thinking would be nice to add because of of some of the traffic we've been seeing, you know, with the increase in port 23 traffic in the internet weather for the last six months. Mm -hmm. But I haven't added it yet, and that's something I may try to get in there for next year. Okay. The next chart I have here is the top 10 passwords that we saw in 2014. Again, just for comparison purposes. And you'll notice in the top 10 there, there were four variations on the word password. You know, password, password one, uh, with the capital P, the at sign, the zero, and just the zero. When you look at what we saw in 2015, that changed quite a bit. Still, one, two, three, four, five, six was the top of the list. That may be a little a little unfair. That is the actual hard coded password in the Kippo honeypot. If they guessed that one, they actually got in, and then we were able to watch them you know, see what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But the rest of them, admin, root, password is still there. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, support, default, UBNT, folks looking for Ubuntu systems, and user. I think that's actually the no, UBNT is actually, it's a, a type of firm, I mean, it's an embedded device or something, it's, right? I think it's ubiquity yeah. uh, network hardware. Yeah, yeah. Right. So there was some change this year in the in the passwords they were guessing though it wasn't four variations on the word password they tried some other things not sure that what conclusions to really draw from all of that but uh, there there definitely was a change in in what they were guessing on the other hand none of them in the top 15 or 20 were particularly complex or distinctive. They didn't really jump out at me when I was looking down through the list. Again, the longest passwords that were guessed, and I, I don't have a slide for that, um, were in the vicinity of uh, 70 or 80 characters. There were a couple that were longer than that, but they, were, they weren't really passwords. It was garbage thrown in there. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm curious. Do you think that do you think that might be some attempt to do a buffer overflow or something like that? The, some of the longer ones may have been um, because it was there were things like um, like the password hashes. Um, you know, the really long mm-hmm. SHA one password hashes uh, from Linux boxes and and things like that. Uh, the, the the garbage code. If you've ever looked at a um, at a word document as text mm-hmm. it's got all of that crap at the beginning the to do the formatting mm-hmm. you know I, I I saw some of that kind of garbage in there as the password attempts so those those might have been attempts at at buffer overflow the longest one that really looked like an attempt to be a password was some uh, random hex or yeah, maybe it was base 64 stuff that was about about 70 characters long mm-hmm. I think the uh, perhaps the other possibility that you see that, that perhaps we don't take we kind of assume not but I mean uh, the possibility of coding errors or installing the dictionary incorrectly or something like that and somebody just not realizing that they're using garbage password guesses as uh, is a possibility as well Yep, that is that is also a distinct possibility. Yeah. The one of the interesting things was to look at the usernames that they were trying. Since SSH often is on Linux Unix type boxes, the top username that folks were trying was root. Mm-hmm. Not particularly a surprise. What was kind of a surprise to me was the second most popular one against against our honeypot again. I was a full order of magnitude less attempts, mm-hmm. and that was admin. And third on the list was another order of magnitude, or no, that was two orders of magnitude smaller. The third one was another order of magnitude smaller than that, and that was UBNT. And then administrator, user were all in that in that same. So by several orders of magnitude, the the biggest. The most guessed username or most attempted username was root. As I said, not particularly surprising since SSH you normally think of as being a you know a Linux Unix mm-hmm. type thing, and all of these embedded routers and security camera DVRs and all of that are running a small embedded Linux. Well, root is the is going to be the account that you're going to go after. That's going to be the one that has you know, has all of the power. Yep, you got it. And I think, uh, you know, it's always been sort of said that, um, like they recommend on Windows systems, to change the administrator account name to something else. Mm-hmm. And in Linux or Unix systems, they recommend that you block direct access to the root account, yep. that you have to log in as a user and then SU to, to uh, root uh, privileges if that's what you need. And um, I mean, this this puts numbers behind the recommendation. Yep. Well, in general, you yep. should be Absolutely. logging in as root remotely in most cases anyway. No, it's not directly. <laughs> and a lot of these embedded <laughs> device vendors, they, you know, Haven't bothered while you yet. can set up SSH very easily to permit root login, set it to no, it's usually they do not. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's, I think, just a convenience thing because it would confuse a lot of novice users if they had to log in as a regular account and then SU mm-hmm. to become root. So 
Anyway, I understand probably why they do it, but I don't think it's the right thing to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the, the next thing that I decided to take a look at was what SSH clients they were using. And granted, some of the time it may be a script that is claiming to be something different than what's actually showing up here. But the, the top uh, SSH client by far was showing up as being PuTTY, which, you know, we're all familiar with PuTTY. That's, you know, a, a free SSH client you can get for Windows. But the, the next one on the list was libssh2, one, one version of libssh2, and that was almost two orders of magnitude smaller number. Those were certainly scripted, the, the libssh2 ones. Didn't know what really to make of it. It just looked, was kind of interesting. Last year it was, it was similar. Putty was uh, far and away the largest one, but the next three after that were libssh. Mm -hmm. These uh, JSCH ones that are showing up here in third and fourth place this year, I am not familiar with that. I believe that that's another library you can use for scripting. Those actually showed up last year, but they were down around eight and nine, so they've mm -hmm. moved up in popularity this year. The next thing I looked at was the top ten IPs doing the probing. So, Jim, before you go on to that, I did. I, I, sorry for the interruption. I did have a sort of a question on this. So, on on this is looking at the client sides that are coming in, and uh, I I don't expect that you have the answer to this, but for folks that are listening, they may uh, find this uh, slightly interesting. It would be interesting to see how the distribution of password guessing might change if you had a different login prompt. So if it, you, know, you have the, a particular login prompt that's showing up on your Linux machine, perhaps there will be a different login prompt that you get from uh, maybe a router device or something like that. And it'd be interesting if that changed how the, uh, the password guessing occurred. It might not have a big you know, change in the distribution, but I'm wondering to what extent the uh, the attackers are actually looking at the login prompt to uh, look for, you know, indicators of that type. Yeah, it, it's it, it, it's a non-zero. You know, there there is some change because uh, when we talked about that um, net screen mm -hmm. SSH backdoor a few weeks ago, I had some friends, including Johannes Ulrich over at the Internet Storm Center, who. Uh, changed the the prompt that his Kippo honeypot gave back mm -hmm. to claim to be one of the net screens and once he did that he did actually see some attempts to use the backdoor password for net screen which he did not see when he was not using that string in the prompt so you're, you're right it it might not change it significantly, but there are definitely cases where folks who are looking for it in order to exploit Specific particular things. backdoors yeah. that are known to yeah. exist. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. So next I looked at the top 10 IPs that were doing it, and most of these are actually the same ones that we saw in 2014, and it was all, these top 10 were all the ones that were doing the scanning at the beginning of the year when we saw those big spikes these were all the, the botnets that were uh, doing that scanning back at the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that I thought was kind of interesting is uh, the when the folks actually did successfully log in, again, the Kippo Honeypot 
the default password is there is one two three four five six, and if they get in, then we log what it is that they try to do. So these are the top ten commands that they tried to execute if they actually got in. Mm -hmm. And the first four of them were attempts to turn off the built-in firewall in the Linux box. Service IP table stop, Etsy init.d IP table stop, SUSE firewall stop. So the first four attempts were all attempts to turn off the firewall. Mm -hmm. And the rest of them were attempts to download and or execute additional tools that they downloaded off of, you know, that they got off internet websites. Mm -hmm. So th those were their exploit tools. And obviously there was one, one set of them that BSSHME tool was the most popular one that they were trying to download and, and execute. So. Now, I noticed these, these numbers are significantly smaller. So this is the subset that basically guessed your password, got in, and started doing things. Is that correct? Right, right. This is, this is a subset that uh, actually um, guessed 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Then we looked at what the... And that was there were about 6,400 of those if you went back to the earlier graph mm -hmm. with the top passwords that were attempted. There were about 6,400 out of the 2.8 million attempts that were successful. And of those, not all of them actually did anything. Some of them, once they got in, they immediately logged back out. But of those then that did attempt to do something, either scripted or, or manually, people, there were some that manually typed commands in. These were the, the top 10 things that they attempted. And you're right, it's a much smaller number, under 500 for each of these. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I thought it was interesting, worth taking a look back at. And since the, that other story had reminded me we hadn't looked at them, I thought it was time we take a look. All right, very good. Thank you, Jim. And you know, I always find this really kind of a fascinating discussion. So I appreciate you bringing that to us. And um, you know, I think you know perhaps we should uh, try to do you know maybe quarterly updates on this type of thing because I think it is useful information to uh, to uh, sort of gather. And I think perhaps there are some other perspectives that we can bring to the table as well. So with that, uh, Matt, let's go to you. And uh, you made a resolution to do some reading. I did. And, uh, and so I really appreciate you, you bringing one of your, uh, you know, book reviews here for us today. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about Bitcoin. So go ahead and yeah, take away, sure. Mike. So the first book that I picked for this year is uh, Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas M. Antonopoulos. I hope I said that right. This was great. This was yep. a really good way to start off the year reading a, an interesting book like this. I... It is, when it says Mastering Bitcoin, they really do mean that. I mean, you can read this book. I mean, you can read, and I, I've talked to John because he's gotten about halfway through it. Yeah, I haven't got it through all of it. But the thing I like about it is, even though you said it is very comprehensive, it's not a super long read. I just didn't get a chance to finish it. <laughs> I've only gotten two days, like, reading, and I got, like, halfway through. But yeah. anyway. So my, my favorite thing about the book is that it's accessible. And you can start at the beginning and you can read the first chapter and then maybe if you want to dip your toe into each of the subsequent chapters, you'd still get a lot out of it without having to understand the nitty-gritty. But if you really want to go for it, you can. Uh, and I did. I read every word in the book. There's a lot of discussion about crypto. There's a lot of discussion about um, 
the the mechanisms, hashing, and other. Um, I don't feel like I'm not doing it justice. If I would, I would say read it definitely. If you want to get that full technical aspect of it, you can either read it as a you know a technical person, or you can just get the high level. Just but you will learn something when you read this book. Yeah, regardless, even if you read just like the first three chapters of this book, mm -hmm. you're gonna under and you know nothing about Bitcoin. You're gonna understand. Bitcoin at a very over high level and under because mm -hmm. I, I didn't really understand how all these different pieces connected with each other right. and how the transactions worked and it really kind of clarified it very and he has really good examples in here as well I think so okay. the, my favorite part of it is that I would be reading this book and I would start thinking about what he was saying and I'd come to a point and go I, I really need I feel like I need to understand more about this particular topic and like the next sentence would be for a discussion on mining go to page 173 and I'd be like that is exactly where I want to go so it's 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 written with my kind of thought process in mind which mm -hmm. I appreciate I, I was really excited to be reading this it, it's weird to say this but I felt like when I was reading this I was exploring something like a whole ecosystem in depth that had been created with a lot of thought and everything sort of flowed progressively to say, here's where you could potentially attack this, which is why we've implemented what's in the next paragraph. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like I went to school and I, I learned about computer engineering and when I was reading TCP IP and the intricacies of that and the different patches and the reasons why people made changes, it felt like this. It felt like I was part of that progression. So it's, mm -hmm. it was kind of cool. So I've learned a lot about Bitcoin from this book. There's a lot of things that I had never known that are kind of exciting. Uh, it's a very complicated system, but it's well enough designed that most people can still use it at the basic level of making transactions, paying people, mm -hmm. and receiving money that they can do it without understanding the crypto below it, right. which is good. Um, so long as you have the confidence in it. That's so long as you have the confidence in it, and I know that there's, there's plenty to be said about Bitcoin, the volatility of its value, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's truly anonymous. And people have made efforts to try and de-anonymize mm -hmm. Bitcoin addresses naturally because it has become so prevalent in ransomware and other illegal activities because of the pseudo-anonymity that it gives you. You can, you can use it as you know, a regular method of payment. I can have a Bitcoin address for the rest of my life and keep it that way, or I can create throwaway ones for every single transaction that I make, and it, it works just as well either way. Mm -hmm. um, I think the big thing that I learned is about mining, which I think is what people think is some sort of mystical thing where you run something on your computer and you magically mine Bitcoins out of the air. It, it's actually more subtle and interesting than that. It's, it's the process by which Bitcoin actually secures itself. Hmm. So mining is the act of basically building a record of transactions that occur, validating those transactions, performing uh, actions within them to say this is, this is good, this guy paid this guy, doing a proof of work, building up what's called the blockchain, which is that, mm -hmm. it's that infinitely growing ledger of every transaction that's ever been made, and then doing some hashing, it's almost, there's, there's an action there of a proof of work that's almost, it reminds me of password cracking in a way you're trying to hash out a value to try to get the same value, the one you want, and then you finally get it and you've, mm -hmm. you've basically won. And it's that action and the rules of the Bitcoin network that pay out a small amount whenever you do that um, fastest, whenever you basically mm -hmm. win this race. Right. So right. mining, the, you can make money off of it, but it's not the primary purpose. It's right. sort of right. a symbiotic, the network benefits and you you benefit as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that was pretty cool. Let me ask a question here. Now, is this book focused on the technical aspects of Bitcoin, or does it talk a little bit about the ecosystem that it's? Uh, the, it's you both. Know, it, so it's it, both. It will teach you the fundamentals of why it works, and mm -hmm. then also 
how it works. So there, there are examples of when you make a Bitcoin purchase. There's a couple of little characters that are created, like there's some guy, some lady buying at a coffee shop, mm -hmm. uh, some guy mining Bitcoin, and each one is using an example and why you would do this and how you would do this. Uh, some of the examples are a little bit, um, I guess, unbelievable. Like there's, well, here's the yeah, thing. Yeah, didn't have a criminal in there. I was well, disappointed. Well, here's <laughs> the thing. The one, that, the one that I felt would be better fleshed out is how a normal person would obtain Bitcoin. Right. And the example of the every, everyday person who gets Bitcoin is she met her friend at the store and, he gave, and she gave him five bucks and he assigned her Bitcoin, which assumes that you know somebody who's already using Bitcoin. Right. Right. So, I mean, there are places online you can go and buy it. I'll be honest, I think most people who want to use Bitcoin like it for its pseudo-anonymity, mm -hmm. in which case you wouldn't want to tie a credit card to the Bitcoins you just bought. Mm -hmm. So, And the important yeah. thing there that I did not know after reading the book is when you make a purchase or a transaction, like if, we, if I you know, transfer a certain amount of Bitcoin to you, that gets put on what's called the global ledger, so I forget the exact term for it. But it's like a ledger that has every transaction that's ever occurred. So you can go in and say for you know Matt's Bitcoin address, what has he trans how much has he transferred and to who? And you could follow that around that money, which is interesting, but you don't know who you don't know, who you don't know who. who's who. Yep. Right? It's just a number or an address. Or at, least, um, or at least if you if you don't bind it with something else, you don't right. exactly. use it. <laughs> so if you're selling online and you're accepting right. Bitcoin as payment, obviously your address will be public record because right. you're, you, you have to tie the identity to it. Right. But you can always transfer money out of that Bitcoin address to other wallets or spread it around. Oh, to, use a mixed network it's very, and, and try yeah. anonymize what It has the ability to really hide where the money is or make it very difficult to figure out where, it's you know, where it is unless mm -hmm. you make some big algorithm to try to figure out all those connections between yeah. everything. So, I didn't mean to interrupt your discussion here, but just another, you know, I, uh, a, a colleague had identified that there are some ATMs that are starting to show up, Bitcoin ATMs. Uh, the one he had seen, he actually sent some pictures. I didn't bring them here, but, uh, you know, maybe we can show them. But they were, it was actually uh, a Bitcoin ATM, I think it was in a bar in Cambridge okay. that uh, he pointed out. So they are starting to show up in sort of common, you know, regular commerce areas and uh, be accepted by more you know, just everyday businesses. Well, at least in our area, I think they're still fairly rare. If you go to New York City, you'll mm -hmm. find a couple of them with the area around there, but I, I, I don't think that they're quite as common yet. And Relatively small communities at this point. So yes, yeah. absolutely. And I, I did look online for, there's a website that tracks where the Bitcoin ATMs are. I make no assumptions or insinuations when I say this, a lot of the places that have them seem to be smoke shops. Mm. Curious. <laughs> Curious, absolutely. Um, so there's been um, some discussion lately whether Bitcoin is dead. Uh, there was a very interesting article about people trying to, well, one of the, the main, I guess, supporters of developers had quit, basically saying Bitcoin is dead, this is ridiculous, mm -hmm. I'm done. While I can understand why he's saying that, there's, there's a certain block of, of people, in uh, miners in China, that are apparently bound uh, speed-wise. Uh, they're, they're like a core part of the network, and yet they're not able to make the, the, perform those transactions fast enough for the network to keep up, so it's, mm -hmm. it's bogging down the network. I think that the foundational technology behind Bitcoin is solid, mm -hmm. and it's, I think it's, it's proven that. There's been at least 20 different articles saying Bitcoin is dead over its lifespan, and there's actually a website tracking those as well, which I found kind of humorous. <laughs> so it's been dying over the years for 20 or however long it was. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we should point out it is a peer-to-peer network the way it works mm -hmm. so 
there really is no central authority. Well, that's one of those funny things that I also learned is that while there's no central authority and in theory everybody is working independently for their own best interest and for the interest of the network, there are key variables that are centrally controlled. Right. The difficulty of those proof of work um, and I think the amount of Bitcoin paid out over time as a sort of reward because not only can you get that Bitcoin paid out for um, being the first to properly mine the blockchain for each block, you can also, I'm getting off, off topic, I think, but that value itself is designed to decrease over time. And the, the proof of work is also adjustable in order to keep a certain balance of uh, a block being mined about every 10 minutes mm -hmm. over the time, factoring in the amount of participants in the network and the amount of processing power. So it's, it's, it's somewhat centrally controlled in that matter, but the actual keeping of the ledger is distributed and spread wide. I, 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 could, I could go on like this. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I think it's an attestation to the value of reading the book. Absolutely. So you're, you're really yeah, would, uh, would, making the point. The other Very thing good. I thought was interesting to me, like as a regular user that I might, like let's say I want to use Bitcoin, it seems to me, and I haven't really played around with it yet, but from if you wanted to have a Bitcoin kind of mobile wallet on your phone, mm -hmm. it seemed like the availability of that um, and the usability of what's available in that space is kind of more ubiquitous than it would be to have like, I got to get a special phone that has a near field communication right, yeah. that I tap on it. Because yeah. they have, you know, apps and you have your Bitcoin wallet. And if you had somebody that you wanted to share with, it's like QR codes. You just kind of scan mm -hmm. with each other and, boop, boop, and you transfer money back and forth. So I thought that was really interesting that it's a lot more, it seemed like it would be getting into using it as a payment system would be a lot more um, available to, across various platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a matter of having people be able to accept it in various places, like a coffee shop or wherever you go, which is, I think, still pretty rare. Or a smoke shop, I guess. Smoke right. shops tend to take Bitcoin. Well, you know what they say, if you've got 16 competing standards and someone decides they've got to find a unifying standard to, to bring all these different things together, now you've got 17 standards. Right, right. So. <laughs> All right, very good. I, actually, I, I'm going to have to go look at the book myself. I haven't, uh, I haven't done that yet. And I think uh, you've definitely uh, convinced me that it's a worthwhile read. So thank you, Matt, for bringing that. Great, no problem. So let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And first item here is scan probes on port 1720 TCP. Now, typically, I mean, that that's port is associated with H323. Typically, this, I think it's usually UDP that's used in this. Uh, in this aspect There's some of this. video cameras that you can hit with that. Some video cameras? There yeah. you go. <laughs> so uh, clearly the scanning activity is relatively new. Most of the probes are from the Ukraine. You can see there's a big spike in activity on the order of 100, hundreds of millions of probes or at least more than 100 million probes uh, for a short period of time. And then it's uh, somewhat continued since then over the last week or so. So certainly video cameras, you want to pay attention to that. But there are also maybe other uh, you know, call control type devices that's generally associated with, um, in fact, I, I typically associate it with uh, video communications yeah. activity, sort of call control associated with video. Right. Uh, since most voice is using, uh, using SIP, which is an alternative. You'll find, though, if you scan the internet for 1720, there are some kind of web cameras that just will yeah. start sending you a stream right away off of that. Yeah, so it's basically a call setup transaction, yeah. most likely. Yeah, there were some recent, some recent reports of default passwords on, on uh, some video conferencing systems mm -hmm. 
don't remember the details off the top of my head, so some of the scanning may have been looking for those. Was that the, the AMX uh, backdoor that you're talking about, Jim? The one that had been apparently used in government installations? Well, that wasn't the one I was thinking of, okay. um, I, but I... Yeah, there are too many, too many vulnerabilities to keep track of. Too many of them, yeah. yeah. But they, just in the last two or three weeks. Okay. Well, that uh, that could be an explanation behind this. Nevertheless, it's uh, it's taken place. So, pay attention to those uh, remote access cameras. I think that would be uh, something worthwhile to pay attention to. Next item here: scan probes on port 8880 TCP. This is generally, I mean, there are a number of applications that I found that were associated with this. I think it's registered to. Uh, a CD database, which is intended to be, you know, look up uh, audio oh, right. CD yeah, information yeah. on the internet, that type of thing. The, the thing that I found most likely is the target here is uh, Plesk HTTP, which is basically, uh, I think, uh, like a website manager. Yep, Plesk like a control right? panel, yeah. Yeah, it's a control panel aspect of this. So similar to the, perhaps Tomcat or the Cold Fusion well, type. A little it's different. more like for a web hosting provider, like you right. have a website and then you can go into your Plesk panel and manage your website from mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So, um, so uh, most of the probes here are from Argentina, United States, Korea. So there were, you know, not a real large number of sources, but certainly uh, something to pay attention to. We're in the tens of millions of uh, probes per hour that we had been observing in this this activity, and we're looking at 60 days of activity here. So you can see it's it seems to be ramping up, relatively speaking. Next item here is bytes on source port 161 UDP. That's a simple network management protocol. We're looking at the last 30 days of activity here. You know, this kind of activity, we're getting, you know, alerts all the time. It's associated with reflective denial service attacks. I only pointed this out because we, there is a, uh, a spike here, I guess, right around the middle of January, just uh, about a week ago, a little more than a week ago, that was relatively large, up around 500 megabits per second. And th this data basically represents a portion of the span of the network. So there's a good possibility that that reflective denial service attack was actually larger. And we're seeing what appears to be over the last couple of weeks, a, a more frequent larger attacks in that activity. So two sides of this, one is you wanna make sure you're protected against denial service attacks. Uh, if you aren't already, and then the second would be that uh, you know if you have router infrastructure that's uh, exposed to the net, make sure that the SNM inter SNMP interfaces are not exposed to the internet. Uh, you don't want to be responding to these types of uh, activities and contributing to those attacks. Uh, next item here is um, basically looking at the top 10 most probed ports. Not a, a lot of movement since last week. Standard port 23 at the top, 53 port 13 UDP following that, uh, 1900 UDP following that, and then uh, SSH 22 TCP, 443 TCP, 53 UDP, 80 TCP, 445 TCP. That 1911, that was the, uh, remind me again, Matt, it's the uh, the industrial oh, protocol. Uh, Tritium Fox. Yeah, again, uh, what we've seen is researchers going after that. And then uh, 3389, that's remote desktop protocol, standard uh, target for probing activity. So we'll take a look at the uh, top two on the list here. Scan probes on port 23 TCP. That's Telnet looking at the last 30 days here. It's actually, you know, down, relatively speaking, from what we had reported last week. You know, I don't think it's down and finished, but uh, certainly down from what we had seen. You know, we've gotten back into the swing of, uh, you know, the college students have gone back to school in the last week or two. It's not unusual to see a little bit of a, a, a curtailment or settling down of some attack activity as uh, folks that perhaps are 
you know, have maybe a little extra time or something during the college breaks and have been doing a scanning activity. I'm not saying that that's necessarily the cause of this, uh, you know, change in activity, but that has been something we've traditionally uh, observed in the past. Scan probes on port 53, port 13 UDP. This is that Netus router backdoor, most popular in Asia. We're looking at the last 90 days of activity. There was a period, and I, I deliberately wanted to show the period in this case here at the end of November, where there was a huge spike in the, pro, in the uh, probing activity on that port. And then uh, subsequent to that, we've seen basically some continuous activity. And this is one where they basically spray out a script uh, rather than doing password guessing, this backdoor allows you to basically spray out script text in that, uh, in that packet. And if it hits one of these routers that has the backdoor, uh, it will uh, execute it. Usually the script says, download this file and do some other things, similar to what uh, Jim was describing earlier in terms of downloading files, turn off firewall, you know, and then uh, uh, execute on this script so but that they don't even have it to create guess a password in this case. No password <laughs> guessing here, yes, correct. Next thing here, top 10 most sources doing that probing. Again, not a real big change here. We've seen, basically seen a settling down a little bit on port 23, continuation of activity on 53, 413, 445 activity still on there, and a lot of other ICMP activity. Usually that ICMP activity is backscatter associated with um, a lot of this other probing activities or denial service tax, things like that. So uh, a variety of different types of uh, ICMP, ICMP3 or ICMP11 responses that tend to come from that. We're also seeing some uh, ICMP0, which is basically responses to pings as well as ICMP8, which is a request for pings. So pretty standard stuff there. I, I thought we'd take a quick look at the um, uh, daily reconnaissance index, which basically is looking at the amount of probing activity, relatively speaking, over the last 400 days. There are two components to this. There's a component at the bottom, the blue, that's associated with the number of sources that are doing that probing activity, and then the top component in red, which is basically representing the number of probes associated with that activity. So the combination of those two are normalized relative to the amount of uh, basically the total amount of flow activity that we're analyzing. So we can see relative changes in the number of probes relative to the amount of other activity that's taking place on the network. So a uh, long explanation here, but the uh, one notable thing, two notable things. One is that we've tended to be relatively flat or down over the last uh, couple few weeks here. So that's a generally good thing. And then uh, there is a very notable spike that was I think on November 27th, and that is in fact the scanning event that we just showed you associated with 53.4.13 where there was a significant amount of probing activity. So you can see how an event like that affects the uh, daily reconnaissance index. So I tend to like thinking of this as sort of the Dow Jones or the uh, S&P 500 where this is actually quite the opposite. We like the Dow Jones to go up even though this is going down. This looks a little like the Dow Jones right now. But we, we like this to go down as opposed to up. So nevertheless, uh, that's what the reconnaissance index looks like for the last 400 days. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, we certainly welcome your email, your questions, your comments. Any other uh, feedback to Matt, perhaps, about suggestions the suggestions for new books? Pick pick the war sure and piece of technology for uh, Matt to review for us. <laughs> the art of computer programming. <laughs> there you That's go. it. Nevertheless, our email address is at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find att Threat Track on the att Tech channel on YouTube as well as iTunes. 
and you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. So I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jim Clausing. Thank you, John Hogeboom. Thank you, Matt Kaiser. I'm Brian Rixford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.